this is Hunter Carter. We both come from movie marketing backgrounds once upon a time. We both did big movie trailers for big movies and stuff. But that was another life. Don't hold it against me. <laughs> hey, it's, it's a wonderful art form when you break it down as an art form. That's what I love about it, yeah. It's, it's, it's emotional manipulation at its, at at its, its best. best. Yeah. yeah, at its best. It's, it's emo- emotional ma- manipulation for a good purpose. Uh, when, it's the, when the movie doesn't have the goods, when the movie itself doesn't have a reason to exist, that's where you get into trouble. And that's what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> uh, so Hunter forced me to read a book called The Society of the Spectacle, and I finished it like an hour ago. It took it took me a week, even though it's a short book, because it is dense. It's like eating wood, <laughs> but yeah, it's, yeah. but it's the type of wood that gets into your system and shreds you up. Lots you on, yeah. and and then and then changes you. But you're very, you, you get it pretty well. You get this book pretty well, or enough where we. Can- I've been sitting with it for about six months. I, I encountered it like a year ago uh, through Reddit. There's a subreddit called Sorcery of the Spectacle, which is about using the occult and various uh, you know alternative philosophies and lifestyles to uh, manipulate the uh, your relationship to the constructed reality that we live in, which is the spectacle. So real quick, define a cult real quick. Because uh, that's, well, that's a weird sounding yeah, word. So a cult in the most general, broadest meaning is basically just things that are hidden. Uh, occulted as in, uh, like, like for example, when, the, when, when we have an eclipse and the moon blocks the sun, the sun is said to be occulted. So mm-hmm. just just hidden. So psychology is an occult science yeah. because thought in your inner life is invisible. Yep. So it's it's such an interesting word because I think like seventies horror movies really gave us yeah. this image of it, but it really just means study of the invisible. Yeah, essentially, yeah. So thoughts. So that being said, tell us about society of the spectacle, because dude, okay, <laughs> just get into it. Let's just get into it. This is crazy. Uh, so the the core premise of the society of the spectacle i think it was written in the 60s by this guy uh forgive me if i pronounce a bunch of guy, names guy dubord is i think it's pronounced g the french pronunciation is uh dubord yeah okay gotcha gotcha uh so he he was a ph- philosopher belonging to a movement called the situationists and basically uh the situationist philosophy is a sort of reaction to capitalism uh, specifically a reaction to uh, Marx's ideas on capitalism. A lot of people don't realize that Karl Marx actually is the guy who put forth the, the whole theory of capitalism, by the way. It's very interesting. I didn't even know that. It, it, people think of communism and capitalism and Marx uh, all being sort of uh, distinct, but really communism and Marx uh, and capitalism were all one thing. <laughs> yeah, so, so Karl Marx had a philosophy and communism was a, a perversion of that philosophy that resulted in a lot of death. Is that safe to say? Uh, I'm bad yeah. at economics, so yeah, yes. play dumb. Play dumb for me. Uh, well, this we'll get into it with Society of the Spectacle. The, the, uh, the Situationists, uh, or specifically the Society of the Spectacle, is about the idea that uh, until recently, um, information and ideas were always exchanged person to person. Uh, relatively recently in human history, we got uh, mass media. So, the, for, for example, the earliest mass media was the inventing, invention of the printing press. And from that point on, the dynamic changed. No longer was reality uh, ad hoc, one person to one person. It was now constructed by one person and then disseminated to mass amounts of people. So for the first time, individuals became, uh, to use a modern term, influencers, social influencers. Right. And... Uh, so it, it wasn't obvious, it wasn't so obvious early on, but what ended up happening, especially with uh, new technologies like radio and then TV and now, uh, you know, film and internet, 
uh, and, and, you know, the whole uh, mobile phone thing, uh, what has ended up happening is that reality no longer, uh, it, it appeared once upon a time that we all shared a common reality. That wasn't really true, but it was the illusion that we were living under for the last uh, X thousand years. Uh, but uh, with the invention of these uh, technologies, now individual, uh, you might call them local realities, have popped up. And they're not all in uh, harmony with one another. So you've got one group over here thinking one thing because they subscribe to X, Y, and Z uh, entertainment package and they, they watch X, Y, and Z news channel and they... They like the Oakland A's. That kind of thing. Yeah. The tribalism. Yeah. This is a tribalism. New, this yeah. is modern tribalism. Uh, except that uh, basically the internet and, and visual media in particular have really exacerbated the uh, cognitive dissonance between these groups because they each seem to exist in their own uh, local hyper-reality. There's mm -hmm. no sense of shared reality anymore. And this is why we're, we're sort of in this situation right now in the, in the current moment where people are constantly triggering each other uh, because they're essentially denying each other's reality like full on. Right. So Democrat versus Republican is, would be a, a very loud one right now. Or male and female. Right. So dual, duality, which when you get deep in the philosophy, that's one of those huge things. They're like basically mature minds have to transcend duality. Yes. Yeah. And, and, and see the whole picture and know how to discern the nuances in between. Yes. Dualism is uh, inherent to the, the spectacle. That's one of its chief uh, properties. And what it ends up uh, accomplishing is the uh, alienation of every single thing. Every single individual becomes alienated from every other individual. Because everyone is an island that's at war with every other island yes. that exists, uh -huh. right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. That sounds safe. So um, <laughs> let, let's get into basic terms like what is the spectacle? Here's my understanding, and then I want you to correct me or, or ex uh, extrapolate on it. Sure. it. It is as if the spectacle is a not alive, lifelike entity, and we start worshiping it, and it starts controlling us. And the best example I could build in myself uh, is when, say, there's a corporation that makes a band. The band's not good per se. Right, like Linkin Park or something like that? Yeah, and it's hard to <laughs> judge good or bad, but let's just say by by vast criteria across many spectrums, it's just not good. It might okay. be average or below average. Got but it. but Timmy, uh, Timmy sees the marketing for it and goes, that's big marketing. I like it. Or, or I have to aspire to it because it's loud and it's everywhere. So now Timmy likes it. Uh -huh. And then Susie goes, well... I don't understand why Timmy likes it, but Timmy likes it, so I'm going to like it. And then soon the whole school likes it, yep. and then soon the whole community likes it, and then soon people aspire to be like that. Because so it's they light. start copying it, so the next generation of musicians are derivative of this already empty uh, uh, thing. Oh, you're getting my Wi-Fi? Yeah. Okay, it's Skynet. <laughs> of course. How appropriate. Yeah. Um, so here, I'm going to connect you to Wi-Fi. You, you tell me about the, the spectacle. So the... That, that's a good example of one way that it works. Um, I'm going to pull up a quote in a sec. I can't remember it exactly off the top of my head. G. Debora has a way of writing really uh, complicated sentences that are hard to remember. It is. So, <laughs> so this book, by the way, uh, is bullet points, basically. It's a, it's, a, it's a list of 200 bullet points. That's it. That's the whole book. It sounds like the easiest thing in the world because my grocery lists are sometimes like that. But... but it's so dense, and he talks in this. He is smarter than 
We are for sure. <laughs> he talks like that and he's not trying to be pompous. Well, go ahead. Read a quote. So it's, here's the first line of the book in societies where modern conditions of production prevail. So that's, you know, uh, what I was just talking about, the uh, modern forms of media. Uh, all of life presents itself as an immense accumulation of spectacles. Everything that was once directly lived has moved away into representation or has become mere representation of the thing that was once actual. So let's say we had to explain that to a five-year-old. How would we, how would we say that? Everything becomes a copy of something else, a copy of itself. Right. And, and we see this since we work in the entertainment industry, we see it a lot, especially with music and, and, and media. Yep. Like say, I want to be famous. Well, why? And suddenly generation after generation just goes, I want to be famous. And, Instead of being famous for something. Right. So let's say Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. being famous, that's extremely functional because they're, fam they're, they're speaking of something that seems to be in alignment with common sense medicine. It's against tyranny. It's good that they're... They stood for something. They stood for something. There was a reason they had to amass numbers to hear their message. Yeah. And, and even if, if you disagree with a famous person's message, they know why they're doing it. Right. And, and then that could be looked at with nuance. So I've got the perfect quote from the book on this topic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the first phase of the domination of the economy... Uh, oh, God. It's already getting... <laughs> it's, it's already go getting... Go Give it a shot. <laughs> Take your time. <laughs> the first phase of the domination of the economy over all of social life brought into the definition of human of all human realization, the obvious degradation of being into having. Okay, so what he's saying there is once we were, a long time ago, we were concerned with being. Now, because of the spectacle, uh, this phenomenon where we uh, lose sight of the real meaning of things, uh, being is no longer our primary concern. It then became having at a certain point in history. Uh, that, that probably occurred along, somewhere along the lines of uh, the Industrial Revolution. Uh, once everyone could, once once things could be manufactured en masse, everyone became obsessed with having. It was the new thing. Well, it sounds like we solved physical survival in a lot of ways. That, yeah, well, that, that uh, happened alongside of it. He does talk about the whole issue of physical survival at a, a later point in the book. And it, there's some nuance there mm -hmm. where we solved it in a way where it's never permanently solved. Like you're only ever one paycheck away from poverty. Yeah. No one is actually safe from uh, the economic threat. Right. So we, we always have to be running. Yes. Movement uh, is death. So then... The, I mean, uh, stagnation is death. Movement yeah, is life. Yeah, correct. <laughs> correct. Uh, so the present phase of the total occupation of social life by the... God, the sentence is crazy. Basically, uh, being turned into having, having gave way into appearing. So you don't even actually... At a certain point, you didn't even have to have the thing that conveyed status you just had to appear to have the thing so like think of for example uh mc hammer who was uh an icon in the 80s uh of wealth he was like the 50 cent of his time mm -hmm. he actually a lot of people probably already know this went completely broke lost all his money but maintained the image of celebrity uh just by appearing in music videos with uh symbols of wealth even though he personally didn't have access to that kind of wealth so that's an example of uh then so being turned into having having turned into appearing and that's that's uh that appearing is now uh currently degrading into something that's not even really <laughs> i don't know what to call it we don't even have a word for something that's less than appearance but uh, it's it's being a shell yeah somehow being a, Zom a zombieism 
something like that. Something like that. Is that a decent enough metaphor? Almost like a zombie or? Yeah. The, the thing that we are having now is like a completely undead version of life. Like, like everything that we once aspired to is, is now a hollow shell of, of uh, what it once was. Well, th that's interesting because when I was a kid and I learned third grade science and I learned what a virus was, one of the mm. big things is a virus is not alive. Yep. It has the signs of life, reproduction, self, some degree of uh, evolution, things like that. Yeah. So, so yeah, it replicates, it evolves, it problem, it could problem solve, it adapts very well. Mm -hmm. It finds new ways to multiply itself. It, it, so it might, it might adapt to be airborne. It might adapt to cold temperatures when it, when before cold temperatures would kill it, but, but it wasn't alive. And I, I asked my poor third grade teacher, Mrs. Kaufman so much, how is it not alive if it's doing all these things? And she's like, it, it, it's just not. And, and she was a, a religious uh, person and she's like, it doesn't have a soul. It's like, well, what's a soul? It's like a soul is like a second power plant. Yep. And That's a good and analogy, yeah. Where, where th that second power plant is also a, a smarter brain. It has a, uh, some volition of its own. The, I yeah. think that the, the... Volition of its own. Yeah. The, yeah, volition of its own. Okay, right. So a, a virus actually appears to... <laughs> This is an interesting analogy. It appears to have life, mm -hmm. but all the evolutions and whatnot that it makes are really uh, sort of automatic reactions to its environment. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not choosing to adapt. It's simply chemically adapting. That, that sounds so much like a robot. Yeah, it, it's automation. Is, is, uh, that's an inherent uh, aspect of the spectacle. It's, uh, it's divorced from in true intelligence. I don't want to get too deep into this, but there's this concept in, in uh, theosophy called elementals, yep. which long story short, I'll oversimplify it. It's, it's lifelike but not alive things that respond to stimulus and response. Mm -hmm. One could say the weather, because what is weather but hot and cold, wet and dry, moving around in different places. The weather might not be considered alive, but to some, it's, it's a force uh, uh, with lifelike attributes. Yes. And, and, in early man, it was even worshipped as lifelike. Considered attributes. to be lifelike. You know what life, I mean? Yeah. So so elementals are a unique thing where it's like you have to work with this stuff. There's a cause and effect. There's a stimulus response, but it's not a living thing. So it only speaks stimulus response. Yes. Is, so, Correct. So, okay. So going back to what this said is first there's being, which is... Uh, uh, Actually living whatever the thing is you're wanting to, to be. Yeah. And then the next was... Direct experience, you might call it. Right. And the next was having. So instead of existing for the reason you exist, whatever that is, right. that's that's nine hours in itself. Why are you alive? <laughs> okay. But okay, you're alive and you have agency over yourself and uh -huh. you choose to grow and life is scary and you're walking towards it and there's ups and downs and it's happy. But you know why you're doing everything. It might be to support loved ones. It might be to grow your craft. Right. Okay. That's being. But then the priority came to having. Mm -hmm. So that's like James Franco in the Spring Breakers when he's like, look at all my shit. And that's it. He's just like, look at my things. Right? <laughs> that's the totality of the experience. It, it became yeah. uh, an obsession with uh, accumulating objects. And then the next stage was an obsession with accumulating appearances. So, to, so you might not even have all that shit. Right. Now, so instead of actually just having all the toys, you, you, you're not, you don't have all the toys but you wear the uniform of someone who would have all of the toys. Signifying that you have the toys, yeah. Okay. And you're so saying... So it's a further degree removed. And there's one step beyond that, which is... It's hard to put into words. That's where we are now. Okay. Uh, it, it's almost... Um, it almost can only be expressed as a negation of all of the stuff that came before. It's, it's, uh, it's 
you know, the Generation X or even the millennial um, sort of posture of irony where I don't even uh, believe in X, Y, and Z. It's a rejection of all those states of being, states of having, states of appearing, but it's not a thing in itself. It's only a, I'm not that. Right. So let, let me see, correct me if I'm wrong with this, but let's say I'm supposed to be doing something like going to bed and instead I mindlessly look at Instagram for two hours mm -hmm. and I'm not even really in control of it. I'm just kind of tired and there's no more room for responsibility in that day. So I'm just scrolling through this mindlessly, uh -huh. watching hippopotamus videos and movie trailers and Star Wars memes. Yep. Is that that fourth state, do you think? Yes, totally. It's, it's, the, okay. it's the fulfillment of the enslavement of the mind. That's so my mind is enslaved in that moment, and that's real stupid of me. Okay, yeah. <laughs> well, you're not alone in that. <laughs> right? That's there's at least six billion other people. Okay, uh, doing that, and myself included. Uh, so that gets us into sort of the heart of this conversation, which is, uh, I think a lot of people have a. It's a tough pill to swallow to tell someone uh, you're enslaved to an invisible system of uh, thought control. And it's put there deliberately by the people uh, running corporations, advertising, propaganda, governments, all those things. That, that sounds like conspiracy theory, but it's actually very believable if you understand certain basic premises of uh, human psychology. Uh, so I want to get into that a little bit. Yeah, because um, it sounds like what you just said was it, it might not even be the goal of the powers that be is just something that happens. Is that kind it's of what both. you're... It's, yeah. Part of the book, uh, he gets into it a little bit, that this was never really a fully intentional um, state of affairs. It sort of happened and the machine got away from us. There's no one running the entire machine. There are people running portions mm -hmm. and the total activity of all of those individuals working together, together cumulatively is the spectacle. But the spectacle as a whole is not run by any one person or group of people right so it's it's an emergent phenomenon it's like we just weaponized bad habits in mass on all of planet earth and it's just rolling and then now yeah. now uh because the bad habits are the cool thing yeah <laughs> those who want to succeed in life have to be in in the market of supporting and promoting bad habits yes we and it's not exactly. that these people marketing it or selling it are bad people and it's not like they want people to fall in the bad habits like ooh, i can't wait to have hunter be addicted to gummy bears well you know i mean but maybe not gummy bears but facebook that's true well so some people are actually engaging it deliberately other people not so much right right so it's both okay i'm with you i'm with you so what do you got here okay so we really in order to discuss how to orient yourself with regard to the spectacle in terms of first understanding it and then secondly, what the fuck do you do now that you know about it? Yeah. Uh, we kind of have to go all the way to the core of perception. Like what is the basis of perception? Ooh, okay, break it down, break it all down. Right. This is, I've got notes here. This is, this, is, this is a high calorie MRE of a podcast already. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what I've come to realize is that analogy is the basis of all experience. Nothing, nothing is known directly. We only know things in relation to other things. That's a hard concept for a lot of people to grasp. A lot of people have this idea in their head that there is some baseline uh, truth that is sort of the bedrock um, fundamental thing that we all agree on. But actually, that's not true. We all have idiosyncratic models in our minds. None of them are equivalent. Each of us perceives differently. And the only thing that we share in common is that that perception happens uh, through this tripartite sort of functionality or schema. So basically, any in any perception, there's a subject, which is the uh, 
the thing that is not known. Then there's the object, which is the thing that's known. It's it's finite in Skype. It's scope. It's uh, somehow defined. Uh, and then there's the relationship, which uh, reveals the unknown th through the known, makes the infinite finite, makes it makes it tangible somehow. Um, so this this idea goes all the way back to ancient Greece. Plato and uh, Aristotle basically said that uh, they saw analogy as a shared abstraction between two unlike things. So analogous objects didn't necessarily share a relationship, like uh, alchemy and psychology. Uh, developed as independent fields of study, and yet we're about to get into how the two are actually extremely analogous and shed light on one another. So uh, basically, they they said that Plato and Aristotle said that uh, these metaphors or images uh, could be used as arguments, and also that they the purpose of analogy was to render uh, something useful. A good analogy is an analogy that makes the user of the analogy confident in doing whatever they're trying to do or gives them a sense of agency, control, power over some situation. Mm -hmm. So let's just try a real basic analogy. In, in, correct me if I'm wrong, but let's say uh, I've never gone skydiving before. Yep. That's very unknown to me okay. and it's scary to me. So as I sit here, let's say I have a skydiving trip tomorrow and I'm like, uh, it's unknown. What is that going to be like? And, and 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 I imagine all these outcomes. And then tomorrow I go on the airplane and I jump out of the airplane and I experience it. Um, and now now it's known. How how could my little skydiving story fit what you just uh, said? So if you were, for example, you have to have a problem in order to make this uh, worthwhile. So let's say you're afraid to go skydiving. Okay. Yeah, I'm afraid. Uh, yeah. Your, your mind is not yet capable of grasping the unknown. That's like one of our most primal uh, psychological blocks is the unknown. Oh, shit. Because it could be anything. <laughs> well, in, in our evolutionary past, it was almost always death. <laughs> it was the so, it was the saber-toothed tiger in the cave. Yeah. yeah. So the unknown is a, a confrontation with death or the abyss. Uh, so an analogy could render the whole the, the premise... Um, tangible for you uh, so that you could work with it so that you could uh, get up the courage to do it. So someone might say, it's like uh, jumping off of a diving board. You mm. were afraid as a kid to jump off a diving board, but then you did it once and it was no big deal. And now you can do it all the time. And since I've jumped off diving boards in my mind, I could now tie my imagination to a known experience, which yes. is jumping off a, a high object. Yes. And so now the thing that you don't actually directly know, you know, through an intermediary, which is the thing you do know. Gotcha. So that's what I'm talking about. Subject, unknown, object, known, relationship binds the two. Yes. Everything is that way. Everything. Everything. There's no, uh, you can't get to an atomic, uh, you, can't, you, can't, you can't find a, an experience or a perception that isn't governed by this principle. And we'll get into that. There's a reason for that. Uh, but first I want to move on to alchemy because we, we've talked about this outside of the podcast a little bit, but I have come to realize that alchemy is uh, the art of applied metaphor yeah. or, or the art of, of applied analogy. Yeah. So for those who don't know, alchemy is uh, an ancient body of occult knowledge regarding a particular set of uh, universally applicable analogies that render anything transformable. So, uh, you know, part of the thing about alchemy is that the uh, object of, of pursuit, the goal of alchemy is to uh, create something called the elixir of life or sometimes the philosopher's, philosopher's stone. stone yeah. And what is, what's the lore about the philosopher's stone? It's uh, something that's a universal cure, a, pa a pa panacea. I'm not sure how you say that word. 
Good enough, yeah. Something like that. Panacea? Maybe, I don't know. Okay, yeah. Never heard it out loud. It, it's, it's the skeleton <laughs> key of cures. It cures yes, all. Everything. Uh, and so the reason for that is that the Philosopher's Stone is uh, is really about metaphor. Metaphor makes anything tangible, makes the unknown knowable. Uh, and anyway, the alchemists... Um, Alchemy is a practice that goes back into antiquity, predates ancient Egypt, but it became popular in the uh, Middle Ages and actually ended up being the uh, precursor to what we now consider modern science. Um, Anyway, the main thing you need to know about alchemy is that there are three primary forces in alchemy. There's salt, which represents whatever is, whatever in your situation is fixed, solid, either hard or sometimes wet. Um, So that might be uh, like, for example, some situation that you feel that you have no control over. That's how it's it's hard in that way. Mm. Uh, Then there's sulfur, which is the sort of opposite principle. It's volatile. Instead of being hard and wet, it's hot and dry. Instead of uh, representing like stone or water, it represents fire or air. And uh, that might represent whatever you do have control over of, uh, usually something regarding yourself. Uh, so, so already we've got a dichotomy here. Other, mm-hmm. self. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Unchangeable, seemingly. Changeable. And then the third principle, which is the key to alchemy, is mercury. And it represents balance. Instead of being hot or, dry or hard and wet, uh, it, it represents moisture. And it's said to be semi-solid, so sort of like a putty or like a, a gel. Like T-1000 from Terminator to yeah, Judgment or, Day. Yeah, the mercury, mercury, the metal itself is yeah. uh, semi-solid. Yeah. So um, just going a little bit further into the, the symbolism there, uh, salt is said to be ruled by the Greek god Saturn. Uh, and Saturn's characteristics are that he has to do with time. Like he's, his other name is Kronos. He's, he's father time. Uh, he uses the scythe, which is the tool of harvesting. Uh, but the scythe as a blade is also about limitation, cutting things off, limiting them. Uh, and his attitude is cruel. So, you know, we experience that we experience time, the passage of time as cruel it ages us. It restricts our pathways in life. As we get older, the possibilities seem to narrow down, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a little constellation of meaning there. And, and uh, the upside is almost like pruning a tree. Pruning a yeah. tree might make it stronger It's not and, necessarily and more focused. bad. Yeah, yeah. But uh, we tend to experience it as cruel because it involves loss. Well, it creates lack and suffering on our part as far as we know. So yes. I'm with yeah, you. Yeah, All yeah. right. Uh, and again, that's generally something we project uh, or, or experience as other. We, no one really considers themselves cruel. Like no one thinks I'm so cruel. Right. Uh, so that's, again, sort of other. And then uh, sulfur, the uh, volatile is ruled by Jupiter. Uh, so Zeus is the other name for Jupiter. Mm-hmm. Uh, his attitude is very jovial. Actually, Jove is the other name. Uh, so there's a cheerfulness that contrasts the cruelty of Saturn. And it has to do with expansion and uh, insight, wisdom, you might say. Uh, and then Mercury is all about communication. So the god Mercury, also known as Hermes, uh, he was said to be the communicator who would fly between Mount Olympus and the realm of mortals or the realm of mortals and the underworld. He could transcend, uh, he could pass through the, the different worlds. All the levels. Yeah. And instantly. Yes. Instantly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is pretty cool. He's the, the inspiration for the flash, by the way. 
Oh, so yeah, he's like the Flash going from the gods down to the monsters below and yep. man and everything in between. And yeah, 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 almost like a little FedEx guy. Yeah. Yes. All right. And there's reasons for that. We'll get we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, so I want to now make some connections to psychology. Mm-hmm. So, um, or actually, first in neurology. So there's this thing called the theory of the triune brain. Uh, who was the guy? I always forget this guy's name. Who came up with it? Uh, Julian Jaynes. He came up with this in 1976. Basically. Oh, no, sorry. That's the wrong guy. That is, we'll get there in a minute. I guess it doesn't matter, but the, the Google it. Triune the, brain. <laughs> yeah. The, can never remember this guy's name for some reason. But, uh, the, the basic theory is that our brain has three main sectors that evolved at different periods of our shared, uh, evolutionary past. And the first one, which is, uh, the most the closely attached to the, um, spine is the reptilian complex which as it sounds, it, it, it sort of governs the most basic um, instincts, which is basically fight or flight. Yeah, um, survive. Survival, yeah. Yeah, it's hard out there. Pure, Especially if you're not super smart, it's hard out there. Right, yeah. So, so stage one, yes. don't die Yes. and eat. And it's very automatic. There's, no, um, there's an intelligence there, but it's not an intelligence that's uh, self-directed. It's just, it just whatever happens is going to happen. Right, stimulus response. Yeah, stimulus response. Like we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Uh, so that is analogous to the salt that we were just talking about because it's hard coded, it's hard wired. We have these uh, instincts that are very difficult to overcome for some people. Uh, talk to anyone who's ever been in a car crash, for example. They will now, after having experienced the car crash, have a very averse um, relationship with driving in cars. And that's the uh, reptilian mind saying, oh, I remember uh, a near-death experience with a car. So fuck no. Flight response. Flight response. Just like we've all touched a hot stove once. And we're like, oh! And then forever, we just know that. Yes. (laughs) Right? So So we have an aversion to touching hot stoves ever since then. Yeah. Same thing. And that's automatic. You don't have to think about, oh, I shouldn't touch the hot stove. It happens without you thinking. Right. Um, Then the next part of the brain that evolved... Uh, according to the triune brain theory, is the uh, paleo-mammalian complex. And that controls basically social dynamics. So in addition to like uh, reproduction, which is a social thing, you know, between two parties, there's also uh, power dynamics. So hierarchies, dominance hierarchies, all that kind of stuff comes into play. And that has an analogy to uh, sulfur because that's about how you express your individual will. But but there there is a higher mind in there, which is, or not a higher mind, a higher concept, which is community and communication. Yes. So, so for the first time, we're moving away from individual survival to social context. Right. Uh, but it is very much about the individual expressing their will within that social context. Mm. Um, uh, but yeah, it's interesting because, uh, so there's a, a juxtaposition here, again, individual and social, automatic, self-directed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the most recent... Uh, evolution to our brain is the front part, the uh, prefrontal cortex, neocortex, prefrontal cortex. Uh, Basically that is the part of the mind or the part of the brain that controls abstract reasoning. And it showed up the most recently. It's, it's the newest thing Uh, also controls language. So again, we're going back to communication Hermes. So the, the, the whole realm of language, abstract reasoning and uh, imagination, that's all equivalent alchemically speaking, to Mercury. Mediating between reptile, animal, and and beyond. Yes. Back and forth effortlessly. Much like taking a jog through a forest. You're you're, you're accessing all of those because it's like, I better not trip. 
Right. Also, I know where I'm going. Also, I'm thinking about the book I'm going to write. Like all these are happening in a single millisecond. Yes. So that's engaging. Okay. Yeah. And in some sense, the so these things also exist, exist on a spectrum from, uh, you might call it most concrete to most subtle uh, or, or most concrete to most malleable. So the salt or the uh, reptilian instinct is really fucking hard coded. We have a hard time changing that aspect of ourselves. Then the mammalian part is largely learned behaviors. So they're somewhat malleable, but you learn a lot of them so early on in your life that some of them can, can sort of stick. Mm-hmm. And then imagination, well, that seems barely to even exist. So it's very free. We can, we can easily conjure up images that have no bearing uh, on our circumstances. So you've, it's a malleable spectrum. Yes. Yeah. Um, so the cool thing is that once you have this uh, analogy between alchemy and psychology, you can actually observe in both yourself and in other people, uh, you, can, you can imagine uh, which of these elements is most active. And you can use your imagination, Mercury, to uh, balance, to bring, bring that equilibrium between the reptilian and the mammalian uh, impulses. So, like, let's say you're um, in you're you're one of those people who uh, has a hard time getting into a car after getting in a car accident. You your Uber pulls up, and you get that boom boom feeling in your heart, and you're like, mm. oh crap, I can't get in. Then someone, uh, let's say someone sees you, and they know about this, and they can see that the reptilian instinct is kicking in. They can use words, language, to remind you to pull you out of that reptilian brain and back into your neocortex, where you can reason. I have no you can you can sort of reason out loud. Hey, you have no reason to fear this. That happened a long time ago. It was one time. You know, whatever. You can you can talk your way out of the situation. And then as you do that, the your own volition comes back into play, and you're like, oh yeah, I can do this. I'm choosing to do this. And if you over- choose, let the words overwrite the the reptilian brain. Yes. Yeah. So so uh, communication can can restore the balance between automatic behavior and uh, volitional behavior. That's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing. That's an amazing way to put it. I've never thought of it that way, like in such terms. That's amazing. So I'm not the one that came up with this. This is actually, this, this idea has been around forever. Uh, but one of the first people to really um, talk about this, I think you could say his name, Hegel. Oh, yeah. yeah. yeah okay. See, I've re- only read a lot of these things. <laughs> right. I haven't really talked about it a lot. Right. No, that's, uh, Hegel's always cited when it comes to any psychology or philosophy yeah yeah so well he's brilliant he, he he's his brilliance is only outmatched by his obscurity i, I saw that on his wikipedia page <laughs> his name is coming up a lot these days and i think it's because of what you're about to get into which is that people aren't allowing communication to happen thus how does anyone get pulled out of their reptile brain especially mm. if their reptile brain's been programmed to just hate a lot of things Automatic and, response. And, and refuse yep. to to grow yep which is uh, but maybe we'll get there. Where are you going? We got next. So I just want to draw another. We're, we're basically going to be drawing a series of analogies between uh, tripartite frameworks. So Hegel's framework is thesis, antithesis, synthesis. You, I'm sure you're familiar with this, but for those mm-hmm. who aren't, uh, the idea is he, he wrote in his book, uh, Phenomenology of Spirit, which was written in 1807, that uh, any line of reasoning proceeds along th- this series of three stages and then just repeats endlessly. So thesis, which is the subject, the thing about which we're unconscious, uh, basically we're making a proposition about something. And then uh, antithesis is 
sort of a more objective, more defined uh, position that actually in some way limits the, uh, the previous, the thesis. Uh, so there's a, an idea and then a negation of the idea. And then once those two things are in juxtaposition to one another, it's possible to then deduce uh, what do they have in common. And, and that third idea that emerges from the interaction of the two is called synthesis. And it's not possible to have synthesis without having both of the prior thesis and uh, antithesis. Right, which, which fits so much Taoism. You know, you're between two opposites, mm -hmm. yin and yang jokes. Yep. Usually it's fantastic and mundane colliding. Yeah, yeah, that's a or, good way of putting it, yeah. Uh, uh, that's actually Pixar. I was at Pixar, and their dean of their in-house university said that's their formula. Fantastic meets mundane. Uh. Like, when you combine the two, that space in between, whatever comes out, that's where you laugh, or you cry, or you're in awe. Hmm. So, uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis is like, the f we ingest it all day long in any media that we enjoy, it seems like. Yeah, It's yeah. been nailed. So, boom. Well, not only has it been nailed, it's actually intrinsic to the way that thought occurs, uh, which is because those, each of those modes is uh, in some way mirroring our own tripartite uh, consciousness with the reptilian, the mammalian, and the neocortex, uh, each representing basically a, a third of our cognition. So we have this sort of triangular structure inherent to the way we perceive already. And thesis, antithesis, synthesis is basically... a uh, an externalization of the, the ongoing process that's always behind the scenes. And, and that's not just invisible. It's it's literally that our electricity is piping through these computers. Yep. Physically. Yeah. It's so, very physical. It's yeah. very literal. It, yeah. Okay. I'm with you. Okay, cool. So um, we've, we've got the same idea in uh, both Freud and, and Carl Jung's model of uh, psych human psychology. So Freud basically said that there's the, uh, the id which is all the murky reptilian stuff that we were just talking about, the automatic stuff mm -hmm. over which we have very little control, if any. Yeah, like try fasting. <laughs> try, try to not eat for a week and just see what happens. You know, yeah. oh! you will become aware of a, a, another force within yourself that doesn't want to fast. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that's the id. It's basically just concerned with selfish things. Um, then the uh, ego is what it, it's the normal consciousness that we all think with. It's what we consider to be I. You know, when we say I, we're referring to the ego. Mm -hmm. uh, that's really a very tiny little process that's like the tip of an iceberg. Uh, and, and below the water is the rest of the uh, unconscious mind. Um, okay, and then we, we've got the, in Freud's formulation, we've got the superego, which he basically said represented uh, a distillation of all the views of, uh, from our culture, from our upbringing, from our family, uh, about what's acceptable. Mm -hmm. And basically that the process of living was uh, basically a, a constant negotiation between these selfish, crude impulses and the uh, boundaries of what's acceptable. And the ego is the result of, those, of that limitation and that uh, chaotic energy merging. Order and chaos. Yeah. It's the, and the, it's and the then the mediator point. in between that yep. chooses how much or how little order or chaos to yeah. let through. Yeah. Got it? So Carl Jung's model is very similar. He, he basically called it the, uh, the unconscious instead of the id, the self instead of the ego. And then uh, he expanded on uh, Freud's idea of the superego by calling, it, calling those mediating things the archetypal images. Uh, the interesting thing that Freud added here is that in addition to um, social expectations, which are sort of enforced on us from without, you know, by other people, 
you can also create archetypal images or access archetypal images through your own imagination within. And by, for example, conceiving of an ideal version of yourself, you can then hold yourself to that as the standard of how to behave instead of some idea that someone else gave you. So you are you are talking reprogramming yourself through imagination. Yeah, we're going there. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we're going we're going to Westworld by the end of this. Okay. <laughs> so Freud's Freud's concept of it did not include that notion that the archetypal images were something that could be uh, manipulated. It was very very much like these are uh, the boundary of of possibility, and you're stuck within it, and you, all you can do is relieve tension in relation to those uh, expectations. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. So relieving tension is a pretty big deal in the human condition. Yeah, well, it's it's sort of a we we were talking the other day about how um, Freud came from like a, a theoretical physics background that thermodynamics were the influence of uh, his model of of the unconscious as this sort of gigantic infinite really uh, well of chaotic energy that's trying to spew up from beneath, but the ego is like this little funnel or like a, wa- a water hose that it's all trying to come through. And the, uh, the super ego or the archetypal images is almost like the thumb at the end of the, uh, the, hose. the hose that's limiting the amount that can come through and therefore applying additional pressure. Right. Which by the way, uh, this is a whole other conversation, but in Kabbalah, the tree of life is essentially that there's infinite energy at the top that's being limited and shaped through the various sephirot on its way down. And then finally it spits out as whatever it, its focus is at yes, the end yeah, into, yeah. Into, into physical manifestation. Yep. But uh, basically what we're saying is ev- everything is the same formula. Yes. All right. This is all one formula expressed a, a myriad of different ways. It, it doesn't matter where it comes from. If it's stuck through the test of time and, and rigorous examination over the ages, Everyone seems to always say exactly the same thing with yeah, different words. Totally. Okay, so continue. So uh, moving forward in time, uh, we get to the new thought movement, um, which I love. We were just talking earlier before the podcast about uh, Neville Goddard, who is my favorite of, of those authors. Um, basically, for those who don't know, new thought was a, a reinvigoration, a re-exploration or a revival of uh, these ancient ideas about um, how to... How, how consciousness was structured, and number two, once you know that structure, how to sort of uh, redesign your own consciousness. Which is literally the definition for philosophy. Yeah. Those two points, yeah. yeah. If, you, um, if you just look it up in the dictionary right now. Okay. So in, in the model of new thought... My neighbor's using the toilet right now, if you could hear that. <laughs> should, we, should we... No, keep going. Okay. It's all good. Uh, so in the model of new thought, it's all about... Um, especially in, in Neville Goddard's model. But this is true for uh, Science of Mind and other versions of this. Even The Secret, is, is, uh, which is the most recent phenomenon. Dis- a, distillation, a distillation, a, a dilution. Yeah, that's true. Of it. Uh, so it's all about feeling, thought, and imagination. And again, those things correspond to uh, both the alchemical model of, so f- and the psychological model. So for example, uh, feeling corresponds to the reptilian complex because feelings are automatic. You don't choose your feelings. Mm. Uh, It's governed by the subconscious mind. And then uh, it's also equivalent to alchemical salt, which is both uh, hard and wet. So how is it wet? Well, feelings are difficult to get a hold of. Uh, Mm -hmm. And how is it hard? Well, you you basically uh, develop habitual, uh, you might call them feeling complexes, over the course of your life where you sort of get into a handful of feelings uh, over and over and over. 
Mm-hmm. So feeling is, is equivalent in that way. And is it Maya Angelou who said it doesn't matter what people say, it's how, it's how you make them feel that they'll remember? Is yeah, it, they is, remember. The, right, correct. Yeah, yeah. And that makes sense because feeling is governed by the subconscious, which is also the home of memory. Yeah, and that's just where most of our computer sits, right? Yeah, the, and, and, the vast and it, majority. It of sounds it. like you're saying feeling is also linked into our densest survival instincts yes. as well. So if someone makes you feel great or terrible, whether you like it or not, a, a strong part of you is probably defining that person as that. Yeah, yeah, as the right? source of that thing, and that's where attachment problems come from. Oh man. Uh, also, in terms of density, uh, you know, emotion is uh, yasad, which is the s- second to most dense. Uh, sphere on the tree of life yeah the one just above malkuth which is earth yeah uh that's tree of life stuff that's the moon by the way and man that is a whole other which is water and solid yeah okay uh that's a whole other conversation though we're not gonna go there today (laughs) (laughs) not gonna get into hermetics too much uh so so then in addition to feeling um which you know is a emotional reality. It's the, the fixed thing, the automatic thing. There's also thought, which is the uh, intellectual activity. So, opposite of feeling, which is passive, intellectual activity is active, and uh, it's the volatile thing, the thing which we can choose. We can choose what to be thinking about, right, or or what to be focusing on. More or less, yeah. Yeah. Like I should you be doing develop. work right now. I am now doing work. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's choice there. Where Until there that Facebook video about baby hippos comes up. <laughs> okay, keep going. Uh, okay, and and just continuing the model in in New Thought, the final uh, element of the Trinity is imagination, which is in the mind's eye. Uh, we can we can apply it uh, to elicit a specific response from the automatic mind, the subconscious mind and therefore trigger or release whatever emotional experience we want. So again, the most subtle thing uh, allows for the mediation between the automatic and the self-directed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, it's the same same idea, just uh, re-expressed for the time that it arose in. And by the way, just straight up Darwin evolution seems to go in this direction where it's like, the, the, the earliest animals, the lowest animals, like a lizard or a dinosaur or something like that is just like, I need to eat foods. Yeah. And then as it, as mammals then evolve, it's like community is important. And maybe it's just as selfish by the way, but it's, it's a, it's a more creative version of community. It's yeah. because a pack of wolves will survive longer because th- there's a, a teamwork um, mm-hmm. uh, going, going on. Right. And then it's like, Oh, we have to take care of each other. Nurturing suddenly becomes a survival mechanism. And then yep. maybe, maybe nurturing uncovers higher faculties that we might define as love. Yes. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. And then we get into humans and now we get to play an imagination. Right. And we, we have these epic things with our imagination, uh, architecture plans or, or how to structure a community or a movie to make or how to solve a disease. And then, and then we get to mediate the densest, minerals of earth and 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 the looser say living things like plants or animals and and then actually create our reality the more subtle our own perception perception becomes the greater the domain of things we can mediate so evolution seems to go from dense to subtle yeah well and back because now we're uh we're deliberately interfering in uh for example the uh the, just the lowest thing, minerals. We were stripping gold from the earth and whatnot. So, right. so now the circle is complete. There's a uh, life has arisen from denseness into subtlety, and that subtlety now gives us power over the dense. Yeah. So it's an infinite circle. Anthropogenesis and cosmogenesis. Yeah, exactly. Look it up. But all right, continue. <laughs> I love uh, these big words. Don't you feel cool when you say things drop. like pre prefrontal 
prefrontal cortex, <laughs> anthropogenesis. Okay. <laughs> Cognitive behavioral framework. <laughs> yeah, okay. We're, we're going there. All yeah. right. What, what do you got uh, next? So just slightly after new thought, uh, we started getting slightly more rational with this. Yeah. And uh, there was a whole movement around this idea of cybernetics, particularly psycho-cybernetics. Um, there's a famous book called Psycho-Cybernetics, which was written by Maxwell Maltz in 1960. He was a plastic surgeon who noticed that some of his clients, uh, let's say they come to him, they want to have a nose job or something because they don't like the way they look and they feel bad about themselves. Half of them, basically, he would uh, do the surgery and they'd feel great about themselves. New, new, new nose, new self. Uh, the other half, he noticed no matter how many surgeries or how extensive the surgeries he would do, they would still feel bad about themselves. Mm. And so he deduced, obviously, that uh, it's not the physical uh, that determines one's attitude toward the self. There's, an, there's a mental aspect. Mm. Uh, a self-image is basically what he came to uh, articulate in psycho-cybernetics. It's kind of like in the Matrix when uh, Neo wakes up in the Matrix after he's had his sh head shaved and everything, and he goes back into the program for the first time. His hair's back and his clothes are back, and he looks like you know uh, a normal dude again. And he's like, "What the heck?" And and Morpheus says, "Yeah, that's your residual self-image. That's the idea that what you think you look like. Yes. Yeah. Even though in real life he's pale and slime covered, and uh, yeah, yeah." But it's not just about uh, physical appearance. It's also judgments. So like if you view yourself as weak, uh, no amount of, uh, let's say, uh, martial arts is going to make you feel powerful. Mm -hmm. Something like that. Yeah. So that's what this guy uh, was uncovering. And, and basically he laid out a whole technique. Um, the, here, I'll just read a little bit from the wiki. Uh, the book combines the cognitive behavioral technique of teaching the individual how to regulate their self-concept uh, using theories developed by Prescott Leckie. Uh, with the cybernetics, uh, it's combining that with the cybernetics of Norbert Wiener and John von Neumann. And basically, it defines the mind-body connection as the core in succeeding the attainment of personal goals. And it gets in, actually into the mechanics of how that works. And it, it has to do with what we were just describing, that uh, we have three aspects to our consciousness. One of them is automatic. The other has uh, a degree of free will. And the third one uh, basically can conjure up images in the mind willy-nilly, completely free. And the subconscious mind, whatever the contents of that are, uh, the subconscious mind will automatically and relentlessly find ways of justifying whatever views you hold there. So if you believe I'm not powerful, I'm weak, you will continually get into situations that, make, that confirm to you that that's true, even if it's physically not true. Mm -hmm. um, so th that image, that image you hold of who am I? Yes, is what all of your processes aim to create. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Your your automatic uh, mind continually affirms whatever you hold to be true. Right. So that is maybe one of the most powerful things you could you could build or diddle with or or whatever in a human being. Yes. Because then their whole machine, mental, physical, and emotional, goes. I better make that true. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So uh, basically, he the, the book outlines a handful of uh, techniques for, number one, dis discovering what the contents of your automatic mind are and your self-image, and then number two, uh, transforming them. And th to, to, to make it very simple, once you know what it is that you want to be, you have to basically repeatedly affirm it and create mental images. Uh, images are key. Without the image, uh, the mind doesn't have a template upon which to uh, build the, do the thing automatically. You have to have the image first. If mm -hmm. you don't have an image, the automatic mind fails. 
So you can't, let's say I wanted to be a basketball player. I'm a horrible basketball player. So if I went, come on, Steven, you're going you're gonna to be the best. You're going to be the best basketball player. That's nothing. <laughs> but then if I envisioned myself making three-pointers yes, and stuff. And, and then... to go back to uh, Neville Goddard for a sec, he actually says, uh, don't, even, like, don't even think about the activity that you want to uh, be good at. Think about what it would feel like to already have achieved the thing you want. So you're feeling yeah. again, yep. tying that into the reptile brain. So, so or, or going permeating all three layers of yeah, reality. Connecting them. Yeah. You basically want to connect the trifecta of self, uh, feeling, and with the image that proves or that is the source of or defines that relationship. Um, so like in, and and with the goal thing, instead of uh, imagining yourself shooting the goals, imagine yourself high fiving your team after you win a game. Mm-hmm. Because uh, that's in that shawarma afterwards. That's where the yeah, that's yeah. where the the feelings are, is in the success, not in the uh, actual action. Right, right. You've so far we've laid a wonderful uh uh, uh what is it trajectory trajectory or yeah yeah cascading cascading data to lead us to this point of of image and feeling is uh-huh. like the most powerful thing. That's yeah that and that's by the way the essence of uh, you know the old forms of magic too. Uh, when, when they talk about um, wizards or sorcerers who would uh, work with the elements, what they're really referring to, to there is these three things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There's a fourth one as well, which emerges from the three. We'll get into that later. Okay. It's earth, uh, the physical sensation. Right. Uh, anyway, let's move forward a little bit. Um, th- there, there was also a theory put forth by Julian Jaynes in 1976. Uh, he wrote a book called The Origin of Consciousness and the Breakdown of the Bicameral Mind. Now we're going to start getting into Westworld because this is one of the main uh, inspirations of uh, Westworld. Mm-hmm. For those who maybe don't don't know or haven't been watching, uh, Westworld is a show like on me. HBO. Oh, you're not watching it? I'm not watching it. Oh, man. But, but pretend I'm a five-year-old okay, who knows okay. nothing. This so break great. it down in that way. Explain like I'm five. Okay. That, that uh, is my service. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Seuss it to me. Okay. So Westworld is a theme park like Disneyland in the show uh, where... They have recreated the Wild West with robots. So everyone except for the guests is robots. They're not people in costume. They're actually perfect, perfect representations, perfect mechanical representations of uh, a human being. But they've been programmed to behave in a specific way over and over so that the guests can interact with them and have a reliable story that you know repeatedly plays out. Every mm-hmm. guest can come and, and experience whatever story the the robots are programmed to, to, uh, simulate. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. Cause I want to explain the theory first. Basically the, the theory was that, or, or is that, uh, there are two primary, uh, functions of the mind. Uh, you might've heard of left brain and right brain. It kind of goes along with that. It doesn't exactly sync up, but basically there's a listening mind, which is passive. L- listening is passive because it's about taking in. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, there's a speaking mind, which is active. And the speaking mind is like anytime you hear a voice in your head, like whether it's your mom's voice saying you should lose some weight or, you know, uh, whatever the voice of God as a schizophrenic mm-hmm. might experience. So that's the, the active mind. And what's the thing that mediates in between? Can you guess? Well, you already looked, did you look? Well, no, but I, I also think I know that would be, that would be, uh, the corpus callosum. I don't know what that means. Oh, that that's the isn't that the the thing between the two hemispheres? Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh so but but in a more abstract sense, the the, the pineal uh, gland. The thing that connects listening and speaking is language. 
Ah, yes. So again, we're back to Mercury communication. Right. Uh, and literally what, what has developed from this uh, theory is that the language in which you think determines your experience of reality. Your, your, your model of reality is directly tied to the language that you were born into. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can learn new languages, and as you learn them, your perception of reality shifts. So that's the subject of that movie, Arrival. Arrival, yeah. yeah. If you change your language, you change the brain's abilities. The, the structure itself of the brain actually is rewritten. Yeah. So new connections and whatnot. Which, by the way, all of this equals our brain is a computer, but it's the most plastic, squishy, rewirable computer. It's an amazing... And, it, and it's, <laughs> it's not just software code, although the reptile brain is a little bit like software code. It's also this, this higher form of programming that we could just call emotion, whatever that is, right? Yeah, yeah. There, well, there's layers and layers and layers. That's the thing. It's uh, multifaceted, but it's simple in its composition because the, the principles are, are super simple. Yeah. Um, Okay, so we got a left brain, we got a right brain, we got listening, we got talking. So, so this guy had a fucking amazing theory about the uh, the origin of and the transformation of human consciousness over time. He says basically that as recently as about 3,000 years ago, uh, so before the Roman Empire, uh, our mode of consciousness, uh, our, our, our consciousness was not divided in that way and that we basically experienced that voice of God or, or the voices in our head as a direct connection to divine consciousness. Mm. So for the people living 3000 years ago who like Moses, who uh, would receive the, the, the commandments from God, that was an extremely real experience of a, of a, um, of an intervention into his own consciousness. Mm-hmm. There was no distinction like, uh, like we have now where I hear God. It was like, God's in my head. I am God. And God is acting through me to do this thing. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where the, it, it's a model for explaining uh, how that attitude was so prevalent back then. Same in Eastern traditions, um, the third eye. When the two hemispheres mediate in the middle, mm-hmm. that's the third eye, which is perception into the divine. The divine. Right. Yeah. Shiva and Shakti. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but Once again, everyone says the same thing. Okay. But since then, uh, and there's... Uh, there's actually archaeological evidence to support this. The, this, the brain, like the actual size and, and layout of it has shifted a bit. And uh, the division between the two hemispheres of the brain has become more uh, pronounced. So mm-hmm. now there, it's what Gilles de Boer would call schism. Mm-hmm. Uh, schism has arisen within our uh, consciousness and now we're divided uh, internally. Uh, so now there's a, a listener and a speaker and then a, a thing that connects them, which is language. Um, so the, the interesting thing about this and the way that it connects to Westworld is that basically the, the, the bicameral mind was experienced as a, a different non-conscious mental schema, wherein the volition, volition in the face of novel stimuli. So like your, your will, whenever you're, uh, whenever you're experiencing something new, um, would be transmitted to, from one part of the mind to the other via auditory hallucinations. You might, mm. you haven't seen Westworld, so I don't want to spoil too much, but basically the hosts start hearing voices in their head that are, the, the show presents them as remnants of, uh, old lines of code, but they start, uh, hearing basically a conscience mm. that tells them to act differently from their, uh, scripted behaviors. Mm-hmm. And, um, basically the, the bi- bicameral mind, uh, at the time, the old bicameral mind, uh, lacked the meta consciousness, uh, an autobiographical memory and a capacity for um, 
Executive ego functions such as deliberate mind wandering or conscious introspection, uh, where, where bicamerality as a method of social control, uh, when it came to a point that it was no longer uh, adaptive, meaning that people no longer experienced reality that way, uh, new forms of population control were introduced that had to do with, can you guess, words. Mm. Uh, so the Bible, the word, th that um, as we evolved to the point that uh, language was uh, sort of the, the thing that's mediating between that voice and the listener, uh, text became really important for control, which is we saw that historically with uh, Nero um, and, and the, the Roman Catholic Church dictating what could and couldn't be in the official uh, Roman Catholic Bible. Right. So tyrannical oppressors who are willing to uh, uh, limit what is truth to yes. the people to control them. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, because the words that you had, once we got to that point in our evolution, the words we had in our head determined the reality that we experienced. Uh, but most people didn't know that. Only the elite knew that. We didn't know we were, we didn't know the term programming, let alone that we're a computer that could be programmed. This was knowledge that was extremely rare. Uh, only the most elite knew this back in the day. I mean, um, only in the past 20 years would these terms even make sense to the average person, right. let alone 2,000 years ago. Yep. What? Right? Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's amazing. Even, even uh, in 1999, when The Matrix came out, that was mind-blowing for people because they had really never considered the implications of programming until right. that movie. Yeah. It was impossible to describe that movie to Pe friends. Yeah. Now it's easy. People, I, well, their whole campaign was built around that idea. What is the matrix? No one can tell you what the matrix is. You have to see it for yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, it was true on some level, even if you wanted to spoil that movie for someone, it required too much uh, in-depth knowledge about how cons computer systems are constructed. Yeah. You couldn't really convey it at the time. Now it's super easy. Yeah. Well, and then, so what are we doing? We're doing the more advanced version where we're, we've set up all of these mechanics here to eventually loop it back to society of the spectacle, right? And, yeah. then, and then soon in 20 years, it'll just be like, yeah, it's like, it's like that thing Hunter said. It's like, oh yeah, I get it. And then you could build from there. Like incrementally, hope, we have I, to keep building these notions until it's one zip file that's instinctual. That's, that's yes. in the realm of, of feeling and instinct. Uh, all of these data points we've talked about in this podcast so far will be collapsed into one knowingness one meme and then we could move forward and then it's real easy to just build on top of that and yep. forever and ever and ever yeah, right? yeah 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 that's the hope anyway <laughs> we'll see if we get there. oh man we'll see yeah. maybe skynet will intervene before then uh so this this basic idea uh explains why uh it's so easy to control people with propaganda they don't know the structure and therefore the nature uh of their own consciousness therefore they don't have any safeguards against the abuse of it Mm -hmm. So, um, like, for example, the basic theory of propaganda is that you've got um, what Freud would call the primal horde, which is uh, the, the people who are the most unconscious, uh, who are totally unaware of the fact that they're always projecting the, their uh, unconscious uh, content onto other people. All you have to do if you want to control a population is choose a scapegoat, so someone, some enemy that rep represents all the things that the unconscious horde hates. So like for right now in the current moment, Trump is uh, saying, well, he's got all kinds of scapegoats, Mexicans, Muslims, all these uh, people who are meant to be, quote unquote, the enemy. Mm -hmm. uh, he, he creates a narrative that tells the primal horde, those are the people who are the cause of all your problems. And since those people don't know that their problems are actually because of the contents of their unconscious, mm -hmm. uh, they believe it. And so uh, they set basically the the person spinning the narrative in this case trump is able to set in motion a conflict 
that keeps the, the, the people uh, at war with, with each other and therefore not at war with him. Right. And, the, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so um, God, there's a famous quote about this. Uh, whatever, keep going. If it comes to, it comes to me. <laughs> uh, so th- that's basically the, that's all you really need to know about the, the spectacle is it's that idea times infinity. Uh, that because people don't know this basic idea about the unconscious mm-hmm. and that the images and the stories uh, that we hold to be true in our minds, uh, either about ourselves or about others, uh, entirely determine what we perceive to be true and that those things are changeable and that, in fact, very easily changeable by other people. Uh, because of that, because no one knows any of that, uh, companies like Facebook, Google, even the mainstream media, Fox News and whatever, have no problem exploiting uh, our ignorance about that. All mm. they have to do is create a story. That's literally all it takes. Create, a, create an emotionally charged story with images that can be burnt into the memory. That's it. Right. And right now, my assumption, knowing a lot about the media and having worked in it, uh, I've rarely met an evil person or someone who's diabolical and wants to go like, I cannot wait to turn everyone against each other. Rather, they just want to like keep their job and, and make more money. Mm-hmm. And they go, well, what's trendy? Oh, uh, duality is trendy. This team versus that team is trendy. Mm-hmm. Hating the other. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, hating Trump is just as much as a scapegoat is Trump hating these. It's all this island yes. versus island versus island. And yes. it's like, so as long as the story seems to emotionally charge, hey, hate that island over there. And then over there, they're hearing, hate, hate that other yeah, island yeah, yeah. over there. And then everyone's just going, blah, 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 like constantly. Uh-huh. And, and no one's actually thinking anymore. It's all very automatic. We're actually, just to get into a little bit of conspiracy, there, there is a conspiracy here, which is that uh, this um, current state we're in, where the majority of people are walking around almost constantly triggered, is by design. Uh, just to parallel um, with what's happening in pop culture right now on the TV show, the flash, which is a CW superhero. Mm -hmm. um, The villain is a super genius who is reprogramming everyone's uh, prefrontal cortex, the imagination with ideas that are meant to trigger them so that they reduce back to their, they regress back to the reptilian state of being and therefore lack the intelligence to rise up against his, his uh, new world order. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a metaphor for what's happening uh, all over the place because companies would prefer for you to be completely uh, entranced by th- these uh, triggering things that they have because then they, the, more, um, the more unconscious you are, the more you engage in clicks and the more you, you uh, make comments on Facebook or Twitter, the more you're using their products. That's well, which is their goal is just it's just to get you to use their products, but they're doing it at the expense of rendering the entire population of the world uh, less than human, In, infantile Infan- at yeah. best, yeah. but but less than it's more like insects fighting insects, and <laughs> you just see this mob going the whole time, mob mentality, and, yeah. and and that's horrendous. Okay, so uh, here's what we know: that's what's going on. Like I don't know the cause of it, whether it's the spectacle, which isn't even a thing. It's just a self-perpetuating machine that pushes us or there's diabolical people or everything in between, which is probably the case. Probably some combination. Some co- yeah. combination of in between. And, uh-huh. and, and, and um, regardless, what's happening right now is everyone's going, Ugh, just these angry, I don't know why I'm angry. There's no thought behind it. I'm, I'm possessed by emotion. I'm not in control of my life. Is what it I'm not in to. control of my life. Okay, so now how can we go forward 
So let me start with a real innocent example. Uh, the other day, I have a friend who's an aspiring filmmaker, and he's struggling. And the economy is real weird right now for, for creatives. Oh, terrible. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's actually maybe worth getting into because uh, uh, creativity isn't valued for its nutritional value as much as it's just like, how do you distract people and et cetera. Mm, but okay. The current use of it. Yeah. The current use of it, which... Um, it's almost like creative people are more like plumbers instead of uh, people who, who reflect reality back onto us just because we're intaking 200 short films a day and we never meant to even watch any one of those 200. You know what I mean? So it's more like, how can I grab your attention? And then you forget about it a minute later, but your attention for that one minute was worth three cents and I'm in it for the three cents and that's our whole uh -huh. model. Okay, whereas what would be more useful is if the creativity showed us what's right and wrong with us how to do more of what's right, do less of what's wrong, and 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 move towards a goal of some kind. I don't yep. even think we're at the point of saying what is a good goal. Just rather have a goal and work towards yeah, it. Yeah, be know? able to work towards it. Yeah. But but so here's what my friend brought up. He said um, he was really having a hard time uh, with with life and the economy for creatives right now. And I go, okay, what what is your goal? And he goes, to have a movie in a movie theater. Oh yeah. And, and here's the thing, that makes sense because for a hundred years, that meant you're at the epitome of your craft and also you were successful in, in the way you've made a product, which is hard to do. Yeah. You won all these battles to make a product uh -huh. and now it is in the epitome of where people could go to look at it and absorb it. And really- Maximum exposure. Maximum exposure. Uh -huh. And I, I, it's my personal view that art is successful once it's in the minds of the audience. Yes. Well, it only is art when it's in the minds of the audience. As in a full conversation just occurred. Uh -huh. The art says something, they listen. Engagement. Uh, yeah, uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis, synthesis yeah. right? And that's the, that's watching a movie, for example. But I go, so why? And he goes, that he actually literally said that's the most meaningful. And I go, but is it? Why do you think that? And man, we broke this down, and and and, and he he resisted it, and like started coming too. He's, like, I said, is your goal to aff affect as many audience members as possible? He goes, yes. I go, is the movie theater the best way to do that? Or has it been programmed into you because mm. you grew up in a world where that was the case? Exactly. He's, he's got a, a meme, an image complex in his mind that was true at another stage in the development of the spectacle, but it's currently not true. Right. So now we deduced it's an ego thing that his vision of, of being in a movie theater is the epitome of life. Well, we broke it down like, what about being successful? What about that movie theater being packed with people? Mm. And and also, okay, cool. So now 100 people have seen it. But but what about the internet? What about putting it on YouTube and a bajillion Billions, people watch yeah. it? And he goes, well, but but that's that's cheap. And and, and I get it though, because I I was I was in the same mindset until recently. And it's like, is it cheap though? Because because isn't the goal to communicate? Right. <laughs> so then so then the next day he's like, dude, you shook me up. That conversation shook me up. He's like, I don't even know really what I want. And I'm like, dude, I get it. And then, but what's really neat is then we could strip away, especially creative people, artists, because artists, like it's hard to define what an artist does. Right. And, and oftentimes artists get caught up in why well, better make money off of it because money is very important to buy the food. And, to survive. Yeah. And put the roof up. Uh -huh. um, but, but, oh, and also ego could get in there. And, and uh, the ego that says, the, the immature part of us that, thinks attention is is the greatest gold that ever existed that attention is validation right it might be a, a vital step along the way it might be 
It often is, but it's nowhere near a goal. And, and that's, that's a possessing element. That's mm. the spectacle too, going, he who is most looked at wins. Right. It's like, but there's or, no or, nutrition or, in that. Uh, even he who is looked at is real. Yeah. So, and which is very infantile in a way. Maybe it's tied into the survival of being looked at when you're a baby. I'm sure. Yeah, it's gotta be. It's gotta be. Uh, if it's like, it's that old philosophical question: If a tree falls in the forest, does anyone hear a sound? Right. Well, actually, check this. Check this one out. Wait, did I just cut you off? Nope. Okay. So, so there is a theory about attachment in that every human being has experienced death, and that is the first time the adult left the room. Oh wow. When you're a newborn, because all that's programmed in you is. I better be taken care of because I can't even move. So attention <laughs> literally is life. Right. But you're supposed to jettison that by like age two. Mm. In, in in harder times in humanity, we would jettison that because we'd have to go by age three, you're in the fields, man. Yeah. You know, hunting boars. Or you're something. hunting boars yeah. with your with your machetes. No, uh, <laughs> but but so then now we've been so coddled and stuff that like maybe we never truly outgrow that. And maybe we're all still kind of uh, a, a little bit of that two-hour-old infant mm. who goes, attention is life. And what do we do? The spectacle makes us worship that attention as everything and as love itself because attention then um, is like, well, statistically, there's more people who will love me and not leave me alone now. Mm. You know what I mean? And now we're just operating like a little baby and we're supposed to be growing up here. So so anyway, when we're breaking down just this mere thing of what's your goal? It's to be in a movie theater. Like it unpacked all this stuff because he realized he didn't know what his goal was or why. And it like shook him the fuck up. Or where he got that idea, why it was uh, so prominent in, in his mm. consciousness, et cetera. Yeah, and, and, and there was innocent reasons such as, um, you know, when he grew up, when he went to see, say, Jurassic Park as a kid. Right. Uh, that's That was the most innocent, pure experience. And you go see a great movie with a group of people in a movie theater and everyone celebrates and happiness is made and boom, there it is. But the world changed, but his worldview did not change. Ah, well, it's also tied to the way the memory works. Like we, you have that experience. It's charged with emotion. There's an image of a movie screen there. It's that's the way that all the stuff that we were just talking about is connected. The emotionally charged images connected to a concept of self. Yeah. So now, um, what what do we do about this? So in people who do not engage in introspection, those, uh, you might call them mimetic complexes, develop and become hardened. They become rigid. Uh, just like with your friend, it sounds like he had a rigid conception of what success meant. And when you, he, he encountered something that questioned that, there was a collision, like a crash and a break. Um, so I want to go back to what we were saying about the lore of the philosopher's stone. Mm. The the whole th the whole idea is that it's uh, the perfect balance of those three um, principles. So the the hard and wet, the the, the uh, hot and dry, and the uh, semi solid and moist. The 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 philosopher's stone is is uh, not a stone and that's hard. It's it's somehow. Um, movable, changeable, but takes a, a shape if you give it a shape. So we are meant to uh, adjust the mimetic complexes, the, the concepts that we have, the way that we relate to the world. We're meant to get to a point where we can change that at will. And, and we can hold a shape, it, it, you know, if, if you come up with some version of yourself, some vision of what you want to be and what you want to achieve and how you see the world, you can choose to uh, adopt that posture and execute your goal, but you're not meant to stay that way. You're meant to continue to change as the uh, circumstances change. Right. So let's say right now, 
you achieve something, a, a goal, and it's a very valuable goal, and, and there's a lot of good reasons to do this goal. You achieve it right now. Yep. That doesn't mean that one year from now, that's the correct goal, and that's the correct way to go about it. Right. That's kind of what you're saying, right? Yep. So, so it's like a dance, in a way. You're always yeah, dancing yeah. with reality and with yourself. You're never just standing there going, it is this. This one thing. Yeah, that's right. a recipe for a lot of suffering. Well, that's funny. Uh, in symbolism, say Shiva, yeah. in, in Hinduism, Shiva is sort of that. He's always dancing. Um, right. But but then sometimes that Shiva's order and sometimes that order, that way of doing things gets off balance. Ah, yeah, yeah. And then Kali has to come in and just knock him wreck, down, wreck everything. Yeah. And then and, and then um, and then he lays down at her feet as as like respect going like, I get it. Um, My way is over. Yeah. But then he also Time but as a role model, he goes like I order. He is order. He goes, I gently, humbly lay at your feet and and. Um, convince you to stop destroying everything so I could start rebuilding again mm-hmm. and build in a balance and in a good way. And then he builds a structure so that Shakti, the feminine uh, imagination could be held mm. in the order he created. You know what I mean? And right. that's sort of the balance of that and, left and brain, right brain life. you're talking that's, about. That's a new structure coming. It's not, it's not the same structure that just ended. It's something new for the new time. Yeah. So, so I once asked a, a, a very smart spiritual fellow, what is enlightenment? And he said to respond spontaneously and appropriately to any given situation. Oh, I like that. And he said, that is the goal of life. And it's like, which oh. isn't a, it's a, it's an always moving goal. So it, perhaps what you're getting at here is to, is this a goal in life, but also a goal to overcome the spectacle? Is it to respond spontaneously and appropriately at any given situation? Is that, yeah, is that too easy of an answer? Is that too much of a gap? The spectacle is an aspect of life. So the attitude toward life includes an attitude toward spectacle, which, mm-hmm. yeah, you ought to be uh, doing whatever is authentic and true and uh, ideally harmonious uh, at any given point in time. The thing is that we're so unaware of how hard set we are in, in certain convictions and uh, you know, our programming can be very hard-coded. Um, that we often run into collisions where our model of the world or our, our model of ourself is in conflict with the now current state of affairs. Man, and that's especially now our world's all mushy gushy because technology is finally like integrated into all of our lives, making things easy yep. in a lot of ways. Yep. Say taxi drivers uh, were pretty solid, then Uber comes along. Or, or yesterday the, or two days ago, whatever it was, Google's announcement about the uh, AI that handles phone calls for you. I... Uh, as soon as I saw that, I was like, well, receptionists are out of a job. Right. They probably don't even know because they're not probably keeping up with this stuff. Well, and, and it'll take a few years. So let's Might take less than a few years. <laughs> right. Well, so actually, I'll tell you on a personal note, working in, in the I'm a, as a director um, seven years ago, it was very hard to have mastered all of the understanding of not just creativity, but also how to how to make an image look good, because mm. like cameras still needed a lot of care and finesse with yeah. lighting and then lighting uh, was expensive so now you have to understand the economics of things and be creative on a budgetary level just so you have a pretty picture and all right. that stuff seven years ago so my skills were very rare and worth a lot of money and then now seven years later every teenager mm-hmm. has the same cameras they shoot lord of the rings on in their closet and it's like and this is easy. You the just red hit a button. camera, yeah. So that gets back to society, the spectacle, because part of the problem—it's just what you said—that the uh, the economic situation is changing very rapidly, and it's always with downward market pressure. Things don't generally become more valuable over time; they become less valuable. That's called commodification. Mm-hmm. 
so basically the, the thing which was once prized and was once, uh, let's say, directly lived has now been reduced to simply having because all you have to do is have the camera and therefore the, t the value doesn't lie in the person but in the object. Therefore, the, the price of that thing goes down, is diminished. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's the general uh, relationship of people who are in the spectacle, who, are, who don't know how to change the spectacle. Their relationship to their value is that they have no control over it. It's always going down across all industries. It's not just the assistants. It's not just the, um, the cabbies. It's everyone eventually. And AI is one of the leading uh, causes of this, but it's not just AI. It's just the process of commodification in general. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so I even heard that education um, is becoming an, a very unstable place to be because now it's just they expect teachers to just be freelance. Mm. So like a PhD university professor now has to uh, teach three online courses for schools that are all over America and then like maybe physically be locked into one year worth of like physical teaching. And then that's just this real rickety life where like you might be solid for six months, but you don't know what you're doing at the end of that semester. And and that's starting to happen with all industries. Like you don't just get a job at a taxi company, and you're a taxi company, a, a taxi driver that's both on salary and on tips. You're an Uber driver, and you just hope people need rides. Wow. Yeah. I mean, right? I, I have sympathy for those people. Um, that this is this is what motivates me to talk about this stuff because uh, people don't even understand that the system within which they exist and think is the thing that's causing that uh, the opposite of liberation for them. It's enslavement. Th they're uh, becoming more and more trapped rather than more and more liberated and able to self-actualize. Uh, so w I want to go back a little bit to the thesis, uh, antithesis, synthesis. Yeah. And the scientific method, which is really where this, basically the uh, industrial revolution and the uh, invention of the scientific method sort of coincided so that we got on this path. Uh, pathway or trajectory of continually refining and refining and refining our uh, thinking about the reality until it became very concrete. And the result is the spectacle, which is full of commodities. There's an opposite idea. I'm, I haven't really seen anyone except for one guy online talking about this, but uh, basically the opposite of the uh, scientific method, the, I'm calling it the mimetic method, is moving instead of from chaos to order, 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 it's going back from starting with the, the finished order and through a series of questioning, uh, a series of questions, moving back by back toward chaos, where you can then create meaning anew. I, I think that makes sense on an individual level. I don't know if society can or or should do that, or can. <laughs> uh, well, well, I mean, I think it's uh, no, it's happening uh, even collectively right now. This whole movement, uh, you know, times up slash, uh, you know, f the the feminine. Uh, Female, the future is female. Gotcha. That, that whole oh, idea. yeah, that's what you mean. Okay. Uh, so it, it can happen on the macro scale as well. That's mm. a re. That's starting from a, a solidified, concrete notion, which is masculine dominance. Mm -hmm. Recognizing that ain't right, mm -hmm. and uh, moving backward, questioning the underlying assumptions that got us there. So we're we're moving back in time, basically, through this discourse and uh, getting back to a point where. I mean, what what I think that it will eventually do is get back to a point where we consider, well, should one gender be on top of the other? We'll probably end up coming out, um, no, mm -hmm. all people are equal and it's not about gender. Right. That's where I hope that this conversation goes. Maybe it will swing and, and 
feminine uh, energy and females begin to dominate? I, I don't think so. Uh, Alistair Crowley, you know, the famous occultist, mm-hmm. uh, described the time period that we're currently moving into, uh, you know, roughly coinciding with the age of Aquarius and whatnot, as being the aeon of the child. So, so basically, long time ago, before we had civilization, when we were just tribal, basically, uh, hunter-gatherers, that was uh, the era of the feminine, the mother, that mother mm. earth. We lived off of mother earth. She nurtured us. Everyone was equal, which is a form of chaos, right? Oh, interesting. Everyone was equal and that was chaos. Right? Because there's no hierarchy. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then with the invention of agriculture, um, let's say 10,000 years ago, something like that, some people would say there, there, there's other alternative histories, but let's just say 10,000 years ago is when civilization started. Um Developing order Developing, out of chaos. Yeah, which was direct, directly uh, tied to literally uh, creating order of crops, like put, putting them in a certain place in a certain time of year and, and whatnot. And then as certain groups of people or certain individuals amassed more resources, they became powerful. They became uh, more powerful than other people. And so hier- dominance hierarchies emerge. So and, who, who is providing the most value in some sense Yeah, would go to the top? Yes. Uh, and so... Th- Basically, uh, alongside agriculture comes capitalism and patriarchy. And we've been on that kick until now, like until last year. <laughs> it's crazy, right? Yeah, uh, things are moving so fast. So we're breaking back in the chaos is what you're saying. Uh, well, that, that process of, of uh, masculinity uh, dominating, literally men dominated the earth by chopping it up into sectors and and putting certain crops in certain places. Mm -hmm. That process has completely materialized, manifest and run its course. And now we're beginning to see the process invert back uh, upon itself toward uh, questioning the underlying premises. Right. Well, and technology is doing that. Once again, say the taxi driver metaphor where it's, there was a structure. If you got your license and then joined the taxi company Mm -hmm. and, and, and license one of those yellow cabs, from the company, you know yep, what I mean? Yep, and, yep. and and that's just what you did. Right. And then now it's chaos because anyone, I could sign up for Uber right now and in 20 minutes be driving people around. And then, and then it, it it's interesting because now the power is in everyone's hands. And then True. what happens when there's too many Uber drivers or not enough Uber drivers and the blah, 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 blah. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. So it's the when the playing field is equal, it, it, it changes everything. Music did this as well, where suddenly music, the songs, give or take, the rare Taylor Swift or, or Katy Perry music doesn't make money. Mm. It's an invisible thing that you consume basically for free on Spotify. It's a loss leader. It's meant to get you to purchase merchandise or tickets. Right. And then by the way, so then I go, is that, is that a bad thing or is that the only answer? Cause movies are becoming the same thing where Netflix is the Spotify completely commodified, completely commodified. But, but then in the case of entertainment, music, and movies, I do believe those are ex- the most powerful tools that we have, I, th- I think. Yeah, I think, I mean, for mass communication, movies uh, especially have a power unlike any other because they engage those three components of uh, our psychology, which is feeling, uh, communication which in speech, in the form of speech, and uh, so, so image, communication, and sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is sound is directly tied to emotions. Mm-hmm. So we'll make this our last topic because we got to go pretty soon. Not that super soon, but this is also the topic I was hoping it all would funnel into. Yeah. Which was, so entertainment, media, the most powerful tool human beings have is becoming valueless. Now what happens to those powerful tools? 
in the people who use them. Uh, the only kind of innovation that can occur is with meaning instead of value. So, so basically meaning and value are, are, uh, are opposed in some way. Uh, meaning is the thing at the top of the spectrum. Value, the, which is literally about material, you know, uh, mm. material value, is at the bottom. That's, that's the gross. Meaning is the subtle. Uh, basically, when we, we approach this era in which uh, things that, that used to have value now have no value because of what we're talking about with the commodification and everything, the only uh, revolutionary act is to do something with meaning regardless of the value of it. Right, because meaningful stuff doesn't necessarily, it rarely gets funded. Like like true meaningful stuff outside of duality, outside of fighting for a team. Yep. Just reflecting human nature back on itself, right? Yep. It's rarely funded. Uh, so then artists maybe are entering that realm again where... It's or, the avant-garde. It's the avant-garde where they're they're starving artists, but also they could blast to all of planet Earth in an instant. For the first time, yeah. So it's really weird that now that stuff might be worth no money, but also it has the biggest exposure. I think that's possible. the way it is, dude. The, the 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 things that I'm responding to now are videos that some random guy in some random place makes and maybe a thousand people see it. Uh, right. Those are the artists that I'm seeking out now. Um, the the stuff that's made by the big budget, uh, com- you know, the, the film studios, TV uh, companies, and whatnot. Avengers, for example, mm-hmm. total totally meaningless garbage to me. <laughs> I, I'm an easier sell. I think it's meaningless fireworks. Uh, okay. But no, I see what you're saying. But regardless, it's not holding a mirror up to us and helping us improve in any way. No. Uh, it's at best it's pacifying go, us. It's pacifying. I, I will agree completely with that. And I love the Marvel movies. I but, enjoy but, I'm not saying I don't enjoy them on but the also, spectacle. Yeah, yeah. Because also like the immature uh, just consumer is very strong in me as well. So I'm just like, yeah, cool. It was loud. <laughs> yeah, I like loud things. Great visuals. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, no, that's enough to like make me happy for those two hours every now and then. You know what I mean? I think I've watched about... 20,000 hours of TV and film. So I'm at the point now where it takes a lot to impress well, oh, me. No, and, and by the way, I'm getting there, by the way, because I figure Avengers is sort of the end of me being so easily impressed, actually. Mm. And I saw it coming years ago, and I'm like, I think that's about it. I don't care about Star Wars anymore. I don't care about the next Avengers and all that much. I might see them. There's a new Star Wars coming out next week, and I'm like, maybe nope. I'll see it. And the fact that that years ago I'd line up for out, I'd, for, I camped I, out. I camped out for all three of the prequels. Exactly. So just so so now that it's uh, we're we're oversaturated. Uh huh. Um, it's well, their value has decreased. Their value. So it's it's oversaturated. Everyone's making movies. There's so many movies. There's so many big, expensive movies. Let alone just like tiny YouTube videos made by high schoolers and whatnot. Right. So so now, what is an artist to do? And it sounds like what you're saying, and I might be agreeing with you, is well. If you want to be, I don't want to say the best type of artist because that's dumb to say, but an authentic. artist, an authentic artist who authentically is reflecting human nature back or, at itself or through your, your own nature or your own nature back into the world. And maybe some people go, yes, I see that. And that helps me in some way. Right. Uh, you're making sense of the madness that is existence a little bit. Yes. I agree. Um, but you're, you're synthesizing meaning where previously there wasn't any. So, yeah. so that's the, the, to me, that's the essence of uh, rebelling against the, the spectacle or waking up from the matrix is realizing, well, if it's all constructed, I can construct something and maybe I ought to. Right. And then, but let, let's drop back into the spectacle for a second. What about the idea that the artist needs to pay the bills? Maybe now there has to be a schism between how the bills are paid 
and making that meaningful. Oh, no. See, now we're getting into the conversation we had just before the podcast. There's this great idea uh, in Japanese philosophy called Ikagai. And it's basically a Venn diagram with um, four circles. And on the the top circle is uh, what you love. So that's kind of your divine calling. Uh, At the bottom, opposite of that, uh, in in some sense, is the uh, most material thing, the thing you get paid for. On the left is what your gift is, like where your power is. Uh, For me, that's creating spectacle in film and whatnot. Uh, And then on the the right, across from the left, across from the power, is, an, is, the, is, is its opposite, which is what does the world need? And right in the middle where all fours inter- intersect is your ikagai, which is the Japanese word for your reason for being. And it's one thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, it, can, you can still express in all those different ways. Like you can still engage in spectacle just to pay the bills. But uh, every time you're doing that, you're doing it at the cost of not engaging in what the world needs. And so on and so forth. And so ideally, as you uh, learn more and more about your own nature and where you fit in the whole uh, equation, you get to the center of the, of the chart, which is uh, where you're firing on all four cylinders. So it, to drive that home with a couple different worldviews, it sounds like, say in the hero's journey. Yeah. So the hero's journey, basically, I want to do this thing that needs doing. I'm going to have to grow. I'm going to go through ups and downs to accomplish it. Uh-huh. And then I'll get an elixir and I'll bring it back to society. And it doesn't count if society doesn't get the elixir. And society also has to want the elixir and, and, and decide to consume it. Yes. And uh, Joseph Campbell did some commentary. I think it was Joseph Campbell since he came up with that thing where he said, the hero's successful only if everything he just did is in alignment with what society is interested in also. It's got to be mutual. It's got to be mutual. Yeah. So it can't just be the artist going like, but I really, my paint splatter. Right. That's indulging. That's self-indulgence. Self-indulgence. So there, there's a service as well, right? Um, Kabbalah says it's sort of like a chef who uh, uh, slaves away, self selflessly slaving away, going to the farmer's market, getting all the perfect ingredients uh-huh. and agonizing in the kitchen, making the food perfectly because he selfishly loves the smile on the face ah. of his patrons or maybe their money or or whatever yeah, but there's that no. balance there's that that communication happening giving and taking they say and they actually call that notion that razor's edge between the t- two giving and taking as the screen ah. right um and that's that could probably be its whole I, there's actually nine hour i saw like a nine hour lecture on the screen so it actually can be broken down i i grossly oversimplified it but the one that really drove this notion home to me was the bhagavad gita mm. i always pronounce it wrong but um I think that's right basically uh, uh arjuna is an archer and he gets to talk to god and he's like well now hey god now krishna now that i know um you know all this is, is there's a bigger picture here uh-huh. why don't i just go sit in a cave all day and like meditate and Krishna's like, nah, dude, you're supposed to be an archer. Do you like being an archer? Are you good at it? Uh, do you need to fight the war right now for the good of all? Yeah, then go do it. And it sounds that like sounds that. sounds a lot like it, yeah. You know? it's, it's, uh, to me, it's about, uh, I, I break it down into, first you have to understand your own nature. Mm-hmm. Then you have to understand the nature of the problems in society. And through the reconciliation of those two things, you find the sweet spot, which is your place in the universe. Right, and it, and it, it feel work is is the greatest thing there is when you accomplish all those things. It's right. better than the it's better than Disneyland. It's better than sleeping in. It's the is, don't you think it's yeah because you're living your purpose and and you know it on some level. I, I like to think of it as dharma. You're living your dharma. Right, the and thing I, you're here to teach. 
I've heard it described as you know you're doing it because you're receiving energy that isn't just from food and water and sleep. Mm. It's like that other thing where mimetic energy. It might hurt, but you're you just you just do it and you can't be stopped. Yeah, you're charged by higher power. You're somehow connected to a higher power. So so I guess in, in final final words here, um, we want to outgrow the spectacle. We want to think for ourselves. We want to do that. What's that Japanese term? Ikagai. And that's a puzzle to solve, I think. That's a yeah. very difficult puzzle to well, solve. Well, actually, I encountered this idea only uh, four days ago, and it oh. took me a day to figure mine out, and it was like, oh, my God, why didn't I find this years okay. ago? <laughs> After this, you and I are, you could help me find mine, because I think I got a bunch of, like, 70%, they're, they're 70% solid in the middle uh-huh. there. I'm still playing with that. Um, hence why I'm just going, well, let's do things like make a podcast, so at least we're offering some service. What we'd be doing we're, we're anyway. We're getting closer to the center every time. Because, by the way, everyone watching or listening, we would be doing this anyway right now if we weren't recording it. Literally, this yeah, same conversation we, We've would had happen. this conversation multiple times. <laughs> because, <laughs> because we're dorks. Um, anyway, well, this sounds... This I think we've wrapped up quite a bit. Do you have any final words on this? I think we've said it. That's great. Well, uh, my name's Stephen Reedy. I'm Hunter Carter. And awesome. <laughs>